Hi, and welcome, dear listeners, to this new podcast where two good friends talk about startups and tech. I'm Mike, and I have Max with me. Hello, hello. Hi, Mike. <laughs> yeah, it's good to be here. We finally did it. We finally did it after probably one and a half years of thinking through it um, in different calls. Um, we finally pushed a record button. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to everyone listening, it wasn't that we spent one and a half years in like actively planning it, but we had the idea for a long time. To give you some context, um, uh, Max, by the way, do I say Max or Max? I, I don't even know. Um, whatever you feel like. Uh, in English, some people call me Max. Uh, you can also say Max. Uh, Max, it, it doesn't really matter for me. So be open for everything. <laughs> okay. Uh, then I'll just go with my gut. Uh, so basically, So basically, Max and I uh, have been really good friends for some time now. And one thing we noticed is that we talk about tech a lot and startups a lot when we have time. But the busier we got over time we spend less and less time talking about it. And both of us felt that we were missing it. And the best possible way of really committing to talking about specific topics is if you just record it and then publish it. <laughs> so that's why we're here. We don't have much prepared, but we have a couple of things we would like to talk about. But before we start, I think this is something that's really important to us. On the one hand, we don't see this as a lecture or something. It's more, we want to learn, grow better. We want to reflect and just have an exchange with the community that we sometimes have on Twitter or LinkedIn, but use, use this podcast basically as a platform to do that. And then also, uh, it will be an evolving concept. We will see what we like. We will see what you like listening to us. And then we will see where we go from there. Absolutely. And maybe just one one thing to add from my side. I think um, there are a lot of young people that are very interested in in the dynamics of startups, in the dynamics of how tech um, has evolved over the last five to 10 years, especially from the generation um, that's maybe born in the 90s. Somehow, of course, they have gotten through different periods and different elements of how, how tech and startups have evolved. And I think it's super interesting to, on the one hand, reflect where have we gotten from from the time being but also where could this potentially go to in the future and i think it's a great way of kind of reflecting both ways um, and also integrate the community in some ways um, and funny enough we, we we don't have a title yet for the podcast so this, <laughs> um, i'm sure if you are listening to this now we have a title ready but since we're recording it right now we don't have a title yet so this is also something where we will be reflecting a little bit on, on the name of the podcast itself. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Okay, so let's start with a very easy question. What is your favorite startup ever? Ever. Ever. Um, that's a good one. Um, so also in, in terms of a startup that has grown to more a bigger corporate or would you rather... Point, like like to point out a startup that has kind of kept a certain size for 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 the time being um i think that that depends on how you want to define it mm -hmm. uh, you can give me two answers if that's uh, it was a little bit unfair i mean it, it's, a, it's a <laughs> difficult question to start with mm -hmm. so maybe just maybe just talk a bit about 
um, what you like in startups specifically, and then maybe mention a couple of names, people mm -hmm. or startups you, you just really like? Mm -hmm. I think a, a couple of things. I think what I like, especially when observing different markets and different trends, and then also seeing the startups acting within those markets is that you can have you can have startups of course that that take a big picture a big problem uh, that's facing millions um, of people at the same time if, 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 if you look at tesla of course who kind of have a, a big impact globally and 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 the mm. vision behind it is more on the on the on the even like on a social economic space, super interesting. But also on the other side, you have very niche startups that probably a lot of people don't know that I also find very interesting because they found a market that is big, but their niche and their technology is oriented for um, for a very niche oriented problem. And I think you can you can of course look at both both sides from a different angle. Um, mm. Maybe to give an example, I think if you look at Germany as an as like just a good example for for change which which might not always reflect um what germany is at all but i think one thing where startups definitely took a good good approach is n26 because they kind of saw that mobile banking has not been really something that has that has been known in germany at all and they kind of opened the door of course they had some inspiration from from the us but in general they made customer experience a completely new perspective and gave other companies a completely new perspective on how a traditional banking environment can be digitalized within um, a couple of years. Um, and now I think they just reported that um, their their revenue side has been stronger and stronger and they, they're very strong in the market. So I think that's a good sign of a bigger market with a good vision, with a transition from, hey, we, we have something tra traditional happening in the market to we want to change something to make customer experience better. And I think that's a, a good example for for a more bigger project that, that they are facing right now that's, of course, also very well known in, in the space. Um, I'm sure you, you can agree on that. Um, that Definitely. Actually, mm -hmm. N26 is a, is a good point because I saw their recent uh, revenue numbers. Right. And at first, I was super confused. How much was it? Like 40, 40 million, 48 million bucks? Right, 48, yeah. And it was, it was for 2018. And mm -hmm. I think that's super important because I didn't know that. I just saw 48 million. And I thought, wow, that's not a lot of money for mm -hmm. something that's as big as N26. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you think about it in terms of, firstly, that it was 2018 and not 2019, which is mm -hmm. a, a big difference, right? If you grow as quickly as N26 does. Mm -hmm. But then also on the other hand, it's super exciting because many people in the finance scene, in the banking scene, like the traditional banking scene, said that N26 has an interesting model to get customers, but they were really doubting their ability to make money. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, they, they silenced a lot of doubters. But on the other hand, I know a lot of companies that are necessarily as big as N26s that make more raw revenue. Absolutely. So there you there you see again that potential and also the speed of growth and what you can become is so important mm -hmm. and n26 just captures so much value that they can capitalize on at some point in the future that it doesn't really matter that there are other companies that make even more money right that's, and uh, hmm. yeah go that's, ahead that's an interesting topic maybe you can also um 
before I have another idea of, of a startup that I think is, is very fascinating. You just mentioned the, the kind of value creation that happens at the moment that can be leveraged in the future. Um, and and mm-hmm. you, you were in the US or you, you were just in San Francisco for Y Combinator. And I think maybe from observing the, the market over there, what do you think is interesting in, in the regard of you have a startup that is creating a lot of value right now. It doesn't make the revenue that it might be expecting, but in the future you see a very value generating um, problem that, or a value generating company that's, that's having a problem on their side that they are solving, which creates the revenue in the long term. For example, LinkedIn, I think is a great example. They didn't earn a lot of money at the beginning, but of course Mm. in the long term, they were crazily successful. Do you see that as something that is, that has been pushed, especially in the United States, compared to other markets? Or do you think that's a general thing where we should move towards more uh, in the future? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So I think that's a really, a really weird dichotomy, almost. So on the one hand, everyone tells you, even, even at YC, all early stage investors, Almost everyone wants to see revenue as quickly as possible, and then revenue should grow quickly. That's mm-hmm. basically one of the core rules of how you build a successful startup, right? Make money and then make more money more quickly. Right. However, on the other hand, there are so many business models where revenue is lagging and where you create a lot of value by either building a really, really good product or by entrenching your users and making sure that they can't really live without your product anymore. And you don't make that much revenue at first. I mean, you, you mentioned LinkedIn, all other social media companies are good examples as well. Facebook, Snapchat didn't make money for a very, very long time as well. Mm-hmm. But then you also have something like uh, biotech, for example, that's a really extreme example of companies that don't know for years whether or not they can even sell their product. Mm-hmm. So I think you always have this um, this weird spread between, on the one hand, you want to make money as quickly as possible and want to grow it. But on the other hand, there are just some business models, some industries, some things that just take a little longer. Hardware is usually a good example for that as well. Mm-hmm. Before, you even, before you can start selling it, you need to prototype, you usually iterate a lot. So the goals for early stage startups look very different. Uh, let's say if you are a SaaS company, or even um, more direct, just like an e-commerce company um, Mm. compared to uh, a company that is building like really big financial infrastructure where you build for two years and won't even start anything in the next one and a half years. It's actually a good example from my Way Combinator batch um, Mm -hmm. that illustrates that fairly well. So there's this one company called Proof and they are building basically... Basically, the last thing the team has built is actually building a stock exchange in the U.S. So there are not too many. Mm-hmm. They've built the first one in a long time. And what they are now doing is building something else in the fintech scene. And uh, they're building something like a brokerage uh, for, um, for selling securities. Mm-hmm. And what they say um, is basically that it's super, super tough to even start the business. And they were with us in the batch in summer 2019, and they won't launch before like some point 2020. Oh, wow. Like, probably yeah. end of 2020. If mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, of course, something that 
that kind of like sim- symbolizes how different a go-to-market strategy can be depending on the the segment. Are you are you consumer business? Are you a more a, a B2B focused business? I think there are a lot of factors that come into play when, when thinking about a go-to-market strategy and when especially the right moment is to launch. Um, and of course, YC also has a lot of content <clears throat> in regards to to launching products, um, but I think in general, if you if you think about very complex market, you just mentioned biotech. A lot of a lot of companies. Um, I also know one um, who are just at the starting point. They are working on protein synthesis, and I think that's mm. also such a complex uh, ecosystem where um, there are a lot of factors coming into play, starting from chemical from from chemical kind of standpoints up to biological standpoints to, of course, the actual culture and and found a team that, that needs to kind of grow the company further. And there are so many factors that come into play that first need to get proved before you can actually launch into the market. And I think um, that's a good, a good sim- symbol for, for different go-to-market strategies from, that's true. From, from, from that perspective. Is that also a startup that you, would rec- that you find very interesting from, from your question at first? Or is there a startup where you think, hey, that's, very interesting to look at at at, cur- at the current current moment. So so first of all, I have so much respect for founders of companies that don't know whether even the basic business model they use will succeed for a couple of years. Mm. So biotech, for example, I have so much respect for these guys and girls, just because on the one hand they don't even know if their product will be if it will work they have to do all the studies they need to get approved etc etc and on the other hand a lot of biotech companies are solving really really big problems i know a couple of biotech companies in san francisco that are doing cancer research that are doing drug rehabilitation that are doing really important stuff in the healthcare space Mm -hmm. and maybe they sit there in seven years and they've worked their asses off but they don't have anything to show for it. Right? right, right. And that's just a very weird position to be in, but I'm super happy that we have these kinds of people. Mm-hmm. Because to be completely honest, I think it would be extremely tough for me to build such a business. Our business uh, itself has longer feedback cycles than most other startups do. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, just not knowing anything for a couple of years is, is super, super tough. And to answer, like, the, to, to get back to the very first question, uh, like, what kind of startups I really like. I, I actually wanted to comment on that when you, when you said it in the beginning. There are a couple of, like, businesses or startups that are not known in the, let's say, mainstream. Mm-hmm. And my favorite example for that is always Palantir. Oh, yeah. Because Palantir is such a big business. I don't even, I don't even know the current valuation, but I think it's, like, roughly $10 billion. Mm-hmm. And what they are doing is, oh, it's, it's, actually, it's actually 20 billion. So <laughs> it's really big. But I think most people on the street wouldn't know it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I would bet a lot, a lot of money on that, actually. It's true. And what, what they are doing is basically building uh, AI and machine learning software for very specialized solutions. They're not only doing that. They're doing a lot of different things. But basically what they are doing is helping companies and also institutions like they 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 work with the military they work with um special forces they work with the government 
they help them to solve extremely complex problem with data. Mm -hmm. And it's just one of these companies that, first of all, it's B2B. So most, usually B2C companies are more famous than B2B companies. Right. But then it's also in this specific niche. They don't need that many customers. And yeah, I, I really like them. I adore what they are doing. It's actually one of the few companies that I ever could have imagined working for a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, super, super impressed what, uh, about what they are doing. Probably one of the few companies where you most definitely have to sign an NDA before you can <laughs> even go into a job application process. Yeah, yeah. Um, probably not only one. They probably have like <laughs> really, really, uh, really, really tough barriers to entry. And actually, it's probably also one of these businesses where you have, you don't necessarily need a specific security clearance, but the background checks will probably be very, 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 very strong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, which is also interesting to observe, right? I think there's a, a Berlin AI incubator called Merantix, um, mm -hmm. who also works at very complex, partly legally restricted issues that they want mm. to solve, um, starting from uh, the healthcare ecosystem where, where they want to help radiologists uh, detect cancer more efficiently so that they kind of have more time um, for for actually helping um, customers uh, and patients, and that's I think super interesting because they combine, and that's also very niche, and they're still very small. But I think the the idea of them is to kind of mix the AI technology to to detect radiology or to to detect cancer for radiologists, and combine mm. that with a full fledged software uh, SaaS ecosystem where. Um, your your technology that you build on the one hand is being integrated into a platform that is user oriented and and uh, fun to use, which is not very usual in uh, in the European healthcare system, and that's something where I see also from a, from a macro perspective where I think potentially it will also go to within the next two to three years that you see very niche technology topics combined with a very user oriented software platform. Um, and you have that all in one, right? Not just mm. with, with more or less like more traditional companies uh, like as SAP that have, of course, they have great technology, but on the user side, it has kind of got uh, still issues because of the software, um, of course, has, has gotten in its age more or less. But I think mm. if, that will be a topic that will be super interesting to observe, mixing the more design-oriented perspective that, of course, Steve Jobs also represented as a person with a very deep tech te technology focused company. Oh yeah, I really want to comment on that, but before we go on, I have to ask because it's a question I have discussed with several people in mm -hmm. the past month. Mm -hmm. Would you use a robot doctor? So for example, you use the example of scanning cancer mm -hmm. and if you knew that the probability of the uh, AI uh, detecting the can uh, cancer is higher than that of a human doctor, would you use it or would you still rely on the human? It's, that's, that's an excellent question. I think um, it comes in so many ways. I think ethically, of course, it's a question, but also um, just for on health reasons. I believe that in, in, in today's age, we see with a lot of examples that data and, and the, the results that come out of data are definitely more um, more helpful than maybe the the human kind of interpretation. Um, so I would I would definitely use a 
a robot for for specific actions i think as long as it might not directly affect death um because then mm-hmm. i think you would like to have a second kind of opinion on on the question itself um and i think cancer is definitely a topic that's very sensitive in that sense so i'm i'm not sure if the data itself would help people to feel secure um mm. for me personally i think it would be a great first step to to believe in the doctor in, at the at the first stage but then also maybe discuss whether potential risks could come along um, and do that with the doctor personally so i think that the kind of mix still would help me but i i would definitely rely on the on the data and the result the doctor or like a a, a robot doctor would give me <laughs> yeah if i have to choose I, i definitely choose the algorithm because it's just more probable that i will know whether or not i will have uh, i have cancer mm-hmm. but on the other hand you you touched on something that's super important and i think human interaction and in general augmented processes where human and ai work together i think even if it's not only a transitional process i think it has a, a future that makes a lot of sense but because most people like you just mentioned are still not comfortable with only interacting with like algorithms or like especially if it's something sensitive like you're you're possibly terminally ill um mm. the and other that... point you you just mentioned um when we were talking about the last topic and SAP was mm-hmm. design and that's one thing where i see a really really big difference between uh startups in specifically silicon valley or san francisco and uh europe it's mm-hmm. it's a very rough generalization so obviously there are counter examples but i really really dislike so many websites and apps that were produced in europe mm-hmm. i think the design focus is so so much bigger in the us and they have such a they have a much better understanding of building really good technology that is user friendly and i know one reason for that Mm-hmm. Oh, I think I know. Uh, at least it's an, uh, uh, it's one of my uh, uh, a thesis I have, and I think that the the biggest differentiator is that most let's quote in quotation marks most real startups in the US have their tech team. They have either a CTO or like software engineers and a designer internally, but there are so many. german but also french and um, other european startups that use external software development teams mm. and very very often it's fairly successful companies if you look at how much they are raising and from whom they are raising that are still using external development teams i won't name any names um, mm-hmm. but you would be surprised how many people or how many startups uh, specifically in germany or the uk raise fairly good series a financings fairly good seed financings but have their developers in the ukraine or in mm-hmm. india and it doesn't mean that they have bad developers there but it's just if you don't have anyone internally who can oversee the process properly and if you can't react quickly enough and iterate then usually the the user interaction and the whole design is worse at least it's my opinion what, what do you think about that I totally agree. I think um especially in such an early stage which Series A Series B still is. I mean you're still developing the culture and the company itself. You want to have all your eggs in one bucket, right? Which means having all employees at one place 
so that you can kind of pick your eggs when you need to when you need them um, on the spot. And I think the conversations that you have within a company that kind of enforce innovation throughout the different teams is something that is missing when you have a software developer team outside of, of your main base um, of your company. And I think one other part that kind of like is kind of like an add-on to that discussion is that I think a lot of European startups that's at least my 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 sense and my opinion. They do hire designers or UX designers very very late in the process. Where mm. I think in the US, especially when you come from a founder centric um, or from a product centric founder um, team, you see that a lot of people have design backgrounds. Um, for example, Airbnb I think is a great example where I think mm. two of the founders not just have software development background, but also have a very design-oriented background that kind of helped them to shape the platform right from the start on. And I, I believe that also comes to the education system. And funny enough, you're kind of working in that space as well um, with, with your startup, is that in, in Germany, I believe, and, and also in Europe, software development is not always linked to good design, which is maybe different in top-class universities in, in, in the US. And I think that would be something that could be emphasized more to kind of connect the two dots to make better products and better platforms. Yeah, actually, Airbnb is a great example uh, because uh, I think actually Brian and Joe met in design school. Right. So, uh, yeah, they, they are great, uh, really, really cool guys. Uh, obviously, they built Airbnb, but they are also fairly humble, always have cool stories to share. Probably the thing is, it's also a bit unfair to use Airbnb just because it's like you can't say anything against it. Right. But right. I, I, I totally agree with what you what you were saying. I mean, um, it comes down to the foundation, right? I mean, you can take mm -hmm. other examples, but I think looking at a startup where more or less the, the founder team themselves, they come from a design background already tells you a lot of why the startup potentially was got so big right because Definitely. they had a... especially in this case absolutely right and i think that can be emphasized more and that can be combined with the software developer discussion that we, that we just had that's true yeah and i'm super super happy that uh basically both of my co-founders can design mm -hmm. uh, both have their their specialties but yeah i'm really bad at designing, so <laughs> that's that's probably the um, the thing where I keep the most distance from. Um, <laughs> at the end, I give my thumbs up or thumbs down. Right. But yeah, both both of my co-founders have uh, a very they, they didn't study design, but they they are really good at designing. On the one hand, just very pretty landing pages, but they're also good at um, interaction design and making sure that that things look good. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing about design where I'm a bit better than just like the pure aesthetics and like how to build it in a way that it looks good. It's mostly more the behavioral part of it. Mm -hmm. And that's also the design part that's often overlooked, right? Because if, if, if people talk about design, usually most people think about visuals, right? But design is much more, right? Design is about how things function. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's actually a really good book. Uh, it's actually not the book I wanted to recommend, but it's called um, the design of everyday things. Oh yeah. And it, it teaches you how much thought goes into everyday things you're using. Mm -hmm. Often things don't work. And then you think, okay, um, well, someone screwed up. 
but there's so many things you use every day without thinking about it. And there is a reason why they are designed the way they are designed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's a really good book. Uh, but one thing you've touched on, and actually it was one of the questions I wanted to ask you during our conversation, and you touched on it before, is are you a fan of remote work or do you think in person is always better? Whew. Oh, that's a big question. Um, I, I, I personally believe, I'm, I'm a big believer in uh, being on the stage more or less um, and, and being there with the whole team. Um, mm. I think you need to have the flexibility to work remotely in order to give people the, the freedom to, to focus on certain topics, especially if the, the, the company gets bigger and bigger. Of course, there's more noise and more interaction between the people that it kind of can be hard to, to focus, especially if you have larger topics that you want to come across with. Um, but I think generally, I believe that humans are made for the interaction and humans are potentially more creative when you have more inputs coming along. I just talked mm. to a couple of friends yesterday night and we talked about the way how you actually find ideas and get creative. And I think you have your idle time, which is more or less the silent time where you kind of process your information. But the step before that is the actual information gathering where you kind of want to have a different, like a very diverse set of information coming from talking to people, books, blogs, or maybe just outside information while sitting in a park and you have all that information that you need and that you need to process to find the right ideas for a certain moment. And I believe that those kind of ideas mostly come together if you, especially for me, right? I mean, it's also a personal thing. When I'm on site, I'm talking to people, I kind of get their opinions and can synthesize and process the information in, in my way. So I'm, I'm a big believer of being on site. Um, mm. how, are, how are you think about it? Yeah, I'm, I'm a really big believer in being at the same place if you really want to get stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have... The, the, the thing I want to add, though, is that remote work and enabling more remote work is bringing opportunity to more people. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's also helping people that have... that are either disenfranchised or have problems, right? For example, let, let's take the... The, the case of someone who is a single parent, for example, and they just need more flexibility often. And, and working from home um, when the like, child is sick or just working from home or from wherever you want in general is probably a lifestyle that makes sense for, for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually, like one of my first startup internships, I did at a remote software company in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And I personally loved it because i could work from venice i could work from wherever i wanted to like mm-hmm. the, i was technically based in sf but i i had to test the product so i worked from everywhere so that was pretty cool but yeah especially for startups early stage or like if you really want to get stuff done i'm a big believer in being at the same place at the same time i think there are tools that really help you to be more productive if you work remotely mm-hmm. because if you work remotely firstly um, especially if it's remote only setting up the right culture is so much more difficult so you have to really really work hard on it mm-hmm. and I've talked to, to some founders who, who are remote only or mostly remote and they are thinking a lot about how to bring people together doing off-sites regularly 
but also they think a lot about process and structure because if you work remotely and even like even more difficulty uh, comes in if you do it between different time zones mm -hmm. you need to have good knowledge management you need to have a good process um and actually um one a couple of my good buddies in san francisco are building uh, a company called tandem and it's a virtual office for remote teams <laughs> um Basically, nice. what they are trying to do is simulating being in the office uh, while you are remote. And they've just raised their, their I don't know if it's a seed or Series A, but like a couple of millions from Andreessen Horowitz. Mm -hmm. So um, remote work is a, a great trend in general. And they are a really good team building a great product. But yeah, for me personally, um, I'm very much in favor of being in the same place. And the funny thing is that even most remote, like most startups that build remote software, so software for people that work remotely, are sitting in the same office. So right, right. I think it really depends on the use case. That's uh, the, the short version. And and absolutely, I totally agree. I'm I think totally valid point, and I I love the kind of idea that arises out of it uh, with um, with with the two friends that you have that work on the product to kind of solve the issue of, hey, we work remote, but we don't really have the connection in between. And I think a lot of, a lot of ideas will go that, that route. Um, also looking at VR, there will be openers, door openers that kind of give you the feeling that you are just working next to each other, but you're all over the map. Uh, and I think we will see technology also solve that problem more efficiently so that maybe my opinion will also change in that written in that regard. So I'm very open to see where technology is heading and where technology is also going to be impacting the general ecosystem around remote work. Yeah. And the cool thing and something I want to focus on more while uh, our, our conversations progress uh, in the next couple of weeks and months is second order effects. Because I, what I find extremely interesting about new technologies, technologies and new startups, new industries is not only what direct impact do they have, but what follows afterwards. Mm -hmm. And my favorite example is uh, the uh, autonomous car, because a lot of our cities, especially in the US, but also in Europe, are designed for cars. And if you, if you look at cities, I think like 20% in, in many US cities are reserved for parking. And so autonomous cars won't only have an extremely big impact on the automotive industry, which is like the first order effect, which makes a lot of sense, but also beyond that. So what are you doing with all that parking space mm -hmm. if, if you don't need it anymore? How will retail change? How will like, places change where you live and work and do things? So yeah, that's definitely one thing I, I, wanted, I, I want to focus on more in the future, just thinking about what changes, what second order, third order consequences new technologies have mm -hmm. and just, just brainstorm a bit about that. That's, um, that's a pretty cool idea. I just put it on the list. I think um, maybe we should explore that in, in just a single episode because I think if you, we, can, we can kind of like go through the different technology trends and technologies that we see at the moment and kind of build second and third order effects based out of those technologies and kind of maybe also use the community as a gateway to, to discuss it in a, in a more in-depth sense with examples, figures, um, stories, and, and, and stuff that we have in mind. I like it. I, actually, I can actually quote a lot from my bachelor thesis. Uh -huh. because the, the topic was second order consequences of artificial intelligence. So I'll, 
I'll, I'll definitely bring that out. Um, <laughs> Please. In the interest of time, right. I have two questions that I wanted to talk about. I like one topic and uh, one question. Mm -hmm. First of all, um, one, th one thing we wanted to, uh, to include when we talk is the book of the week. Right. And um, I think it can evolve into like the content piece of the week or something if we want to uh, give a shout out to a blog or something. But mm -hmm. one thing that you and I are very passionate about is um, basically learning beyond the immediate work that you're doing. Right. And just trying to broaden your horizon, dive into new topics. And I'm always open for book suggestions and I actually have a list with like a ranking. Mm -hmm. And I thought that like just giving our listeners our favorite books, uh, it's so cliche, but it's, it's one of the things that I get the most requests for. Just what are you reading right now? Can you like give me your favorite book? <laughs> I want to start with the favorite, but um, maybe, maybe each it's... of us can just recommend one. I was just about to say, maybe it's good to like do one, one once a week so that people kind of have the chance to, if they're fast readers, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to, uh, to, to go th and, and kind of check them out and see if they're relevant for them. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you start. I think that would be great as a, as a first go-to. What's, what's your, your book at the moment or your favorite book? Um, or maybe I don't want to comment on my favorite book because it's like it, probably a debate for like at least two episodes at once. <laughs> But one of my favorites is, it's actually a fairly short book, but one of the books that I've reread a couple of times and that has changed the way I think, uh, also about change and about like macroeconomic changes mm -hmm. uh, or macro changes. And it's called The Lessons of History from the Durants. I think we definitely talked about it before because I mentioned it a lot. Mm -hmm. And basically what uh, Will Durant and his, his wife, Ariel, are doing is they give you a summary of periods in history and of trends in history. And they comment on how they change society, how they change humanity. And it's one of the best books that I found that uses, like, or that looks at really, really large phenomena and explains them succinctly and also in ways I haven't thought about before. So mm. it's a really good book. It's a short read. Uh, I'm very sure that you will like it. And you, you heard what, what uh, Max just said. Uh, you have to read a book per week now to keep <laughs> up. Um, and it's probably a good way to start with a, with a shorter one. I think that that's a great one. I've, I've heard it a lot of times. I haven't had the chance to, to dig into it yet. Then um, you should. I, I should, especially after this podcast now. I have a couple of <laughs> weeks now to, to, to do that. And maybe we can also do a couple of reviews in case we... We actually read those books that we kind of recommend each other during the kind of lifespan of the podcast. Um, great. I think I just, I definitely, um, that's definitely on my list. Um, it gets higher and higher the more people talk about it. So I think it's time now. Um, yeah. Now, now you basically have like some public commitment. So you can't, you don't have any excuse if you haven't read it in like two or three weeks. Two, that's, <laughs> that is also a valid point. Valid point. Um, and I think, maybe we can even do certain episodes once in a while about deep diving into the different topics of those books, maybe mm -hmm. just in regards of the time, maybe we don't do that today. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm, I'm currently recommending a book that I read a couple of months ago that has been, or I think it's like half a year ago, but I think it's been like in my mind for a while and I'm kind of applying it day by day, which is high output management um, mm. by Andrew. Um, I don't know his last name. Um, 
you probably do, right? Andrew. Uh, Andrew Grove. Andrew Grove. Yeah. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's an, the Intel guy, right? The Intel guy, right? He was the CEO at Intel and he was... Andrew Grove, yeah, that's him. It's it's absolutely fascinating how he kind of puts his thoughts together into like a 200-page book um, that, that covers different topics starting from how do you actually recruit people to how do you kind of time manage yourself to the topic of... Um, maybe organizational planning. Uh, and of course, Intel back then was a big company already, but I think you can apply it to the different stages of a company. And I, I think one thing that a lot of people don't know, funny enough, is that he was the guy that founded or maybe explored OKRs, objective key results mm. that mm. Google used afterwards. Um, and, and they got famous for it because they actually found the word OKRs. But I think Andrew was the guy that, kind of had the idea in mind of um, structuring an organization for certain objectives and key results and initiatives. And I think for everybody that don't know OKRs yet, maybe you check them out. I think they're a very helpful tool to structure and process your organizational flow and your organizational goals. And Andrew was the guy that, that kind of brought them into place. And I think he's very fascinating. Apparently, he was a culturally oriented guy that still had enormous success in the different teams and could empower people to do great. Um, so I think that's definitely one of my big recommendations for people listening. Yeah. He, he's such an inspiring figure as mm. well, because he, uh, if I remember correctly, I think he emigrated or fled from uh, some communist controlled country. I don't know which one it was. Mm -hmm. Hungary. I, th I think it was Hungary. Could be. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but, but not like in his childhood, but I think when he was like, I don't know, 19, 20, like early 20, something like that. And uh, basically he was, he became so successful. One of the most revered managers in the whole tech ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And he, he didn't really speak the best English for a very, very long time. Right. right. Which is, which is insane if you think about it. But yeah, <laughs> great guy. I, I love the book. It's, it's probably one of the management Bibles out there. Absolutely. Oh, it's really good. Which a lot of people don't know. So I think it's good to, good to mention it again. Definitely. Uh, I think you can't mention high output management enough. Right. So absolutely. Definitely agree on that. Okay. So the last point I wanted to cover is uh, basically a, a short discussion on, uh, and maybe also an invitation to everyone who's listening to this on what we should talk about in the future. Because there are a lot of potential like, ways uh, we could do this. And obviously, we will like optimize for what's fun for Max and myself. <laughs> but uh, it's it's also, I think, partly uh, what what you like. And I have a couple of things in my head um, that that could be part of it. I think we want to have some structure. So we either want to talk about the book of the week, for example, or maybe the startup of the week, or um, have some questions or topics we talk about every week. And then we will probably talk a bit informally like we did today and just go from conversation to conversation and see where, where the flow leads us. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any specific things that you would like to, to talk about or any, any feedback you want to gather um, from, from the people who are listening? Um, I, I, I think I would leave it like that. I think it's a great opportunity, especially the first episode to see who's listening, if there are any people listening <laughs> and what's the kind of, 
what's the, the a potential outcome that they would like to see uh, when when we talk about certain topics? Because of course we kind of want to direct in those um, in in in, di- in those directions that also make sense for the listeners. So I think it would be great um, to to have their feedback. And maybe one one other feedback is that I think we would also love to see um, how people potentially use and apply. <clears throat> certain book tips or if they have actually read books and what they have gotten out of it to also maybe integrate the community into the process of mm-hmm. the discussion. Um, so as soon as people maybe read your books or my books or kind of tried out different processes, I think it would be great to use that as a reflection point in the future. Ooh, yeah, we could do community recommendation of the week and then just like uh, feature feature someone and his or her recommendation. I like that. Like By the way, we will definitely have at least a couple of listeners for example, my grandma is listening to everything I always produce. So <laughs> shout out to my grandma. The thing is that she, she doesn't understand English. So what she usually is doing when I publish anything in English, either in like a press article or when I like am somewhere like a guest or something, mm-hmm. then my, my little brother, who's still like living closer to her than I am, has to sit there and translate. So oh, wow. shout out to my grandma, shout out to my brother. Shout out to your brother. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, that's probably a good thing to close on. It was so much fun. And, absolutely uh, it actually like uh, the, the start felt a bit rough but then afterwards it flowed really well exactly how our conversations usually go <laughs> With, so, without a clear agenda and structure which is great it's exactly yeah. what we needed i'm excited cool thanks everybody for listening um let's stay in touch and hopefully we uh, we hear each other again next time <laughs>